on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Had to take a break last week because, you know, it was the gala. Um, this week, we are joined by a good friend of mine and uh, an expert that I admire greatly, Dr. Helen Fisher. Um, before we even get into introducing Dr. Fisher, I wanted to remind all of you veteran Zoom people that have uh, signed up for our record-breaking attendance um, to use the Q&A. Well, you guys know it now. <laughs> Just type your questions in there, make them succinct if possible. Uh, also, everybody on YouTube, just type your questions in. We'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Uh, Dr. Helen Fisher is an expert on romantic love. She is a biological anthropologist and senior fellow at the Kinsey Institute. She describes love as one of the strongest universal human drives. She has also studied the brain circuitry of people in various stages of love and studied marriages and divorces in societies uh, around the world and across time. She has written six books, um, including, of course, her classic, Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and why We Stray, uh, as well as one of my favorites, which is also available on Audible, uh, Why Him, Why Her. Helen, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Jennifer, I'm delighted to be with you and thank everybody for joining us. So, and wonderful. So, um, and by the way, Mazel Tov. Uh, Helen is also a, a new bride, uh, a COVID uh, bride. So that's just really wonderful. Um, now, of course, COVID, you know, we're all obsessed with the, um, you know, the developing science uh, and, and the, the health implications in terms of physical health. But um, you have also written a number of articles published in the New York Times uh, and also for Match.com about relationships during COVID. How has this era of lockdowns and COVID fears, how is it impacting relationships, not just for those who've been in long relationships, but maybe for those uh, who are just beginning relationships? Well, you know, it's, it's really bizarre to say this, but as horrible as this whole experience is, this whole pandemic is weirdly given singles, actually, and an awful lot of other people to a bit of a gift. Um, I study singles, I think you know, I'm chief science advisor to match.com. And I do an annual study with them called Singles in America. Now, we do not poll the match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the US census. And this is the 10th year that we've done it. We take about 5,000 people every single year and we're in year number 10. So I've got data on 50,000 people, but we did our study right in July and August at, you know, during the COVID thing, wanting to know uh, the impact of this. And actually I had written that article in the New York Times um, uh, hypothesizing uh, that certain things would happen and I was right. <laughs> um, what we're finding is that with this lockdown, we're seeing a new stage really in the courtship process. Prior to this lockdown, people met on the internet and that's all these dating sites are. All they are is introducing sites. That's all they do is introduce you. And then they go into meeting in person. And during COVID, we saw the, the rise of a new stage in the courtship process of video dating. So during the last six months, they've met on the internet and done a lot of video chatting. And then 
they're beginning to now go out in person. And what's happening is um, uh, the most recent data, we took the data in August, uh, people are spending much more time getting to know somebody. Um, they're having more meaningful conversations. Um, they're expressing more honesty and transparency, more self-disclosure and academic data shows that the more self-disclosure you have, the more likely you are to create intimacy with somebody. Um, they're also um, expressing um, less concern about their looks and the looks of their potential dates and more concern about finding somebody who is um, financially stable uh, and has a full-time job. So what we're really seeing is more meaningful, intentional uh, dating. People are getting much more serious. They're growing up is what's going on and looking for something that uh, could really work for them. So um, in many respects, in all of these respects, we're moving into a stage of more careful dating. I think we're gonna have fewer first dates because you're gonna get rid of the frogs. You're not gonna kiss all those frogs on the first date. You're gonna get rid of them during the video chatting. So uh, singles, over 60% of singles now do use video chatting as a vetting process. Um, and what, what really blew my mind is when I asked, did you have any chemistry for people? Actually, it didn't blow my mind. It blows other people's minds. 56% um, of singles say they did feel some chemistry for somebody during the video chatting. And they 50% uh, fell in love with somebody. And as you know, I study the brain. This brain system can be triggered instantly. And, you know, COVID didn't kill Cupid, bottom line. Uh, we're going marching right along. Um, uh, uh, finding, looking for people and finding them. And I do think we're gonna have fewer first dates because we're gonna get rid of people before uh, during the, the video chatting, but they're gonna be much more meaningful first dates and much less awkward first dates. I mean, you know, prior to this thing, you went out on the first date and you have to think, oh, am I gonna kiss him? Should I kiss her? How do I, how do I handle that? You know, where should we go? Uh, you know, uh, do I spend a lot of money uh, uh, on a fancy restaurant? Do we just go to a coffee house? Money's been off the table for six months. Sex has been off the table for six months. And people are having these more meaningful conversations. So weirdly, I think this is continuing this long trend that I call slow love. This long period of courtship is getting even slower. And all of the data show that the longer the courtship and the later the marriage, the more likely you are to create a long-term stable partnership. So oddly enough, we may be heading towards some um, uh, a romantic stability due to COVID. Wow. Or maybe even a romantic renaissance. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, one thing that's very interesting is, um, uh, uh, you know, I have a lot of calls from all over the world, and I recently had a call from a journalist in Russia, and then that same day one from Brazil. They both use the term the new Victorians. What they're calling the young now is the new Victorians. And apparently in America, um, <clears throat> well, in America, <clears throat> one third of people in their 20s still live at home. Now, they've been living at home for the last few months, but prior to that, they were still, they were living at home. Uh, and of course, if you're living at home, you're going to be having less sex. You might bring a boy or girl in once a month, but you're not going to do it every night. Uh, and um, the, I've studied the young. I've, I've got data on 50,000 singles, and uh, certainly the young are very important. Uh, in fact, I'm crazy about millennials. These people are careful. They are cautious. They might be going out and having their, you know, one night fling, 
But right off the bat, they want to know where we're going. They invented the term, define the relationship. They want to know where this is going. 40%, I got, this is a data that I got last year. 40% of singles today want to um, uh, get self-acceptance. Jennifer, self-acceptance before they catch feelings. Now that's a noble, <laughs> I think that's rather noble. And um, uh, one third of them uh, uh, want to uh, get some financial stability and a career uh, path going before they, before they went. So it's a very serious generation, um, unlike what people think. Uh, they're very cautious. Uh, they'll have their one night stands. They'll have their friends with benefits. You actually learn a lot between the sheets uh, about somebody, not just not just whether they're any good in bed, but uh, whether they are kind, whether they can listen, whether they can be patient, whether they've got a sense of humor. So we're really seeing um, dating slowing down. And in fact, we're seeing, starting out these days, it's just friends, we're, we're just friends. And then they move into the friends with benefits, they got to learn something about these people. Then they go out and have the official first date. In fact, 34% of singles have had sex before the first date and older people think that's bizarre. But in fact, they've tried somebody out. They now know they wanna spend their time with this person. They spend their money with this person. They wanna tell their friends about this person. So they then have the official first date. Then they slowly move in together and very much later will marry. These people wanna know by the time they walk down the aisle, they wanna know who they got. They wanna think they're gonna keep who they got. Uh, Etc. So it's a cautious generation, and I think that's going to lead us into some stability in marriage. Well, uh, I think we, we're going to have some questions from the audience. So, guys, um, prepare your questions, submit your questions. This is an incredible opportunity uh, to to ask uh, an expert on romantic love, someone who has studied every angle uh, of this issue, and um, for especially during this really. Um, singularly uh, unusual, unlike anything that we've experienced before time. Um, so how about, how does that break down with regards to genders, uh, Dr. Fisher? Like, you know, we had the sexual revolution, which provided women a lot more opportunity to uh, have different romantic partners, but at the same time, it also complicated things for women and they didn't have kind of that playing card as much as they, they have had previously that, you know, you can't buy, uh, you're not going to buy the cow if the milk is free. So has, has this given women more agency or um, has it, how, how has it affected the gender balance? It's just so interesting. First of all, when I studied self-disclosure, I mean, I just read about self-disclosure. Men are just as likely to uh, uh, ex express self-disclosure as women are. So they're not doing their stonewalling, they're not standing back. Um, it's very interesting, you know, men have really, I mean, this is all comes from real science, from uh, these uh, Singles in America studies, which is real science. Um, men are particularly, I think they're tired of being running the show here. Uh, over 90% of men would be perfectly happy if a woman was the first to uh, ask for the telephone number. Uh, they would be perfectly happy if a woman were to invite them out. Uh, they would be perfectly happy if the woman were to make the first move for, for kissing and for sex. And uh, women won't do it. 
women want and women shouldn't do it as well you know you and i have debated this before do not ask a man out if he wants to I, I agree with you jennifer i think we must have agreed when we talked about it it's not in our nature it's just not in our nature uh by the way the young women are doing it more and fortunately, society is enabling women to do it because they'll say, you know, they'll invite somebody to go out uh, with a group. Oh, we're all going hiking on Saturday. You want to come along? Well, we're just friends. Sure, we're just friends. But, you know, it's a clear, you know. So women, women make their moves. But yeah, they're very, bad idea. Bad but idea. they're <laughs> subtle about it. They are very subtle. You know, I mean, I have friends who've studied singles bar behavior and there's basically four parts to it. I mean, both men and women come into the bar or wherever and they set up a territory. And then they draw attention to themselves with the, the clacking of the, the heels and the, and the whatever. And then generally it, it's often a woman who goes up to a man up to the bar to order a drink or whatever and asks the man a question, you know, what's the food like here? Uh, you know, um, do you know much about this place or anything like that? Um, it's often the woman who uh, touches first, who casually touches the elbow and say, well, what do you think of that debate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, and then they'll begin to move in body synchrony. But at some point, there's something called initiative transfer. Men have to make the move of putting his arm around her, of inviting her out, of, of doing that. And women will not give up that, um, that, that play, <laughs> that role. And, and I think that in many, although men are perfectly happy these days to have a woman make the first move, it's my guess that an awful lot of them are comfortable with their, with their, um, with their role in this, uh, being the director of this scene. But you know what? Um, I think we misunderstand women and I think we misunderstand men. Uh, you know, um, men fall in love faster than women. They fall in love more often than women. Um, when a man meets a woman that he uh, falls in love with, he wants to introduce her to friends and family sooner. Men want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with wives or girlfriends than women do with husbands and boyfriends because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends like you and me, Jennifer. <laughs> and um, men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So when it comes to romance, uh, men are the more fragile of the two sexes. And uh, so is this changing? No. I mean, you know, these patterns of romance have been around for so many million years. Uh, they're not going to change dramatically. What is changing? And, you know, everybody's saying, oh, technology is changing love. Technology isn't changing love. Technology is enabling us to do this same old thing uh, in a new way. But uh, it's changing courtship. It's changing where you meet somebody. But it's not changing this brain circuitry for romantic love. What's really changing today is not technology, but women piling into the job market. That's what's changing relationships. And you know, in hunting and gathering societies, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with over 50% of the evening meal. The double income family was the standard and women were regarded as just as sexually and socially and economically powerful as men. Then we began to settle down on the farm. Men's roles became much more important, uh, moving the trees, moving the rocks, plowing the land, going home, home to local markets, coming home with the equivalent of money. And women became less and less able to go off wandering to do their gathering. 
and their primary job now is to have lots of babies to help them pick the vegetables on the farm. So you see with the rise of, 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 the, of, of farm life, all kind of a belief systems that we're just shedding today. I mean, the belief of virginity and marriage, that a woman's place is in the home, that the man is the head of the household till death do us part. These are, are, are vanishing before our eyes around the world. And in many respects, we're moving forward to the kind of lifestyle we had a million years ago with women in the job market, having fewer children and um, being economically productive and socially and sexually powerful. So um, what has been also happening with uh, divorce? I've seen some reports that there has been an increase in uh, levels of, of, of uh, rising divorce rates during COVID. What are you seeing and what, if that's true, do you think might be contributing to it? Well, um, you know, we weren't built for 24 seven. We were not built for this. We were just not built for this. I mean, in hunting and gathering societies, men might go hunting for three days. Women might go off gathering and go and see friends and family in another group for two weeks. I mean, it's called fission fusion, moving in and out of, 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 uh, of the relationship. And uh, we just weren't built for this. And so if you are in an absolutely dreadful partnership, but you've been able to keep it stable because you go to work every day and two or three nights a week, you play cards with somebody or you, you go off and play tennis or you see your girlfriends or something and you can remain some sort of stability. But suddenly it's 24 seven and those things that are driving you nutty drive you over the edge. I'm not at all surprised. I mean, we weren't built for this. And um, I mean, we're not only seeing more divorce, but we're seeing more domestic violence uh, and suicide and alcoholism and uh, depression. We just weren't built for this. What's interesting though, and of course there's no data on this is, you know, we are hearing about all the bad things, but I wonder how many people actually fell in love during this and, and cemented a partnership that might've been unraveling because nobody was spending enough time together and suddenly they have you know created a, a playful home environment there's more sex there's more energy in the household etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're always hearing about the bad parts and no question about it that there are a lot of instability but also there could be and we have no data on how many people fell in love uh, or fell in love again with their husband or wife or or this or that so um, I'd like to hear the other side of that. But, you know, I mean, it's interesting about divorce. People say, oh, divorce. Well, you know, sometimes divorce is not a bad idea. And exactly. <laughs> um, people don't leave good marriages. I mean, people say, oh, if you make divorce easier, you know, everybody's going to get divorced. I don't agree with that. It's like, you know, just because there's a bar on every corner and a liquor store doesn't mean that everybody's going to be an alcoholic. Just because there's opportunity, it doesn't change the brain. And what's interesting now is that um, we've now come in America to believe that, you know, we used to believe that um, you've got to stay together for the children no matter what. And now over 60%, I think like 67% of Americans actually do believe that if it's a really bad situation, it's much better for the children, much better for everybody to actually divorce and, and move on. I mean, what children need, what we all need is stability. 
We want to be around people that like us, who love us, who want to be there, uh, and and some routine. And in a really dreadful partnership, there's not going to be any of that. So perhaps, I mean, you know, we were talking before this began, perhaps uh, we're going to see um, legal mechanisms to make it easier uh, to divorce. And in fact, I think we were seeing that before uh, this pandemic. Um, you know, I mean, um, uh, uh, prenups have been around for a while now and they're not hard to get. Uh, um, oh, for people, it costs them money, that's the problem. But uh, in um, France, they have something called the PACS, P-A-C-S. And what it is, it was, it was started in the 1990s uh, for um, gays so that they could have some of the privileges of marriage. And um, it turned into being something that was, has become very popular with heterosexuals. And what you do is you just go to the, I don't know, the town hall, I guess, and, and get a piece of paper and sign it. And then if you want a divorce, you don't even have to go back, my understanding. All you have to do is send the paper in or some other form in. So I think we're beginning to see and I think we will we'll probably continue to see um, uh, some form of, of, of legal ability to make divorce a little bit easier, which uh, I would certainly be in favor of. I mean, you know, I mean, for millions of years, you know, you didn't have to go through five years of bureaucracy to, <laughs> to walk out of the hut and find a new partner who likes you better. So uh, <laughs> I'm for I am for, you know, whatever it takes to, to see if we can't uh, uh, sort of uh, help this, help, help people to get out of bad partnerships so they can make better ones. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't remember who it was. Um, Might've been Oprah. She said, you know, the universe is waiting to hand you a bag of gold, but first you've got to let go of the sack of you know what <laughs> so i mean <laughs> you you have to make space if you want better friends if you want better romantic options you, you've got to make space but you just can't you know do do both at once and, and you know we're also going to have your your husband on i hope soon if he'll have us and and one of uh john tierney he's his signature that he's well known, his uh, research, his uh, journalism has been on, I think his latest book was on, on fear and, and uh, talking- the Power of bad, really. Power of bad, yeah. Um, and what he talks about just how we have evolved to be magnetized towards bad, which is not necessarily realistic. You know, it's not necessarily objective. Right. Um, and that we might be paying inordinate, disproportionate attention to things uh, that are negative because we see them as threats. And that, you know, we are not paying enough attention to the opportunities, right? Or the things that we have to be grateful for that can provide us more sort of spiritual ballast to feel like we have more agency uh, moving out in the universe. And one of the things that I, I think about, you know, I brought up the thing about rising divorce rates and you mentioned you'd like to hear the other side about that. This is totally subjective on my part, but I have just in the past seven, eight months, um, you know, it, it's not like it's a status symbol, but it's just when we look now to the couples, to the married couples, or the long-term couples that have a, um, you know, a successful relationship going, that has taken on 
increased sort of status, like, you know, okay, well, whatever, you have the, uh, you have the, you know, job, you have the whatever, but, you know, we now, I think, pr pr have more respect and admiration and esteem for people that have something that is, can be so helpful when going through a terrible um, experience like the lockdowns, and that is a successful relationship. You know, I, you know, you brought up so many things here. So uh, just to, to backtrack a little bit to John Tierney's book, uh, The Power of Bad, um, you know, what, what I tried to add to that book and, um, you know, there is an enormous brain. I mean, I, I, I study the brain. I put people in brain scanners. There's a basic brain region, it's a huge brain region in the ventral premental, uh, uh, ventral, um, oh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, part of the, of the cerebral cortex right here the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's a brain region called with what they call negativity bias. We are built to remember the negative. And for millions of years, that was adaptive. Uh, it's nice if you know you and I are walking along the grasslands and we're great girlfriends and, and we both forget the other girl who can't stand us. Well, we, we could die. And so uh, we remember. The brain is built to remember the bad. It's built to remember the negative, not the positive. And what's interesting about um, that is when, um, when we put people who are in long-term happy partnerships. Now, these are people who were married an average of 21 years. Uh, into the brain scanner, we found that activity in that brain region linked with negativity bias reduced. They were willing to overlook or able to overlook or did overlook the negative. They were able to accentuate the positive. And um, that's one of the things that I say to all these singles people, you know, if you're going to use the internet, nothing wrong with the internet dating. In fact, it's the predominant way of dating, meeting somebody these days, but we don't know how to use it. And one of the things we do is we're focused on the negative. He likes cats, I like dogs. Oh, it'll never work. Forget it. Think of the positive. Um, over, overcome this natural bias uh, for negativity. And John Tierney's book uh, really goes into that in spades. It's, it's a wonderful book. But anyway, um, in terms of long-term happy partnerships, you know, a lot of scientists have studied, particularly psychologists, have studied uh, long-term happy partnerships. And um, they say lots of good things. The best I think is John Gottman, very well known. He talks about the four horses of the apocalypse. Uh, you know, don't criticize, uh, don't uh, show contempt, uh, uh, don't be defensive and don't stonewall. Just don't, you know, just not, not even listen. That's all good, it's all good. But this is what the brain says. I just wanna add what the brain says in a long-term happy partnership. So we put people in their 50s and 60s, all married an average of 21 years. Uh, most of them had grown children uh, we, and we had them take lots of questionnaires. You always do that before you put people in a, a brain scanner, fMRI. And these are the three brain regions that become active in people who are in a long-term happy partnership. Brain region linked with empathy, brain region linked with controlling your own stress, and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with what we call positive illusions. The ability to conquer this negativity bias, overlook what you don't like about somebody, and focus on what you do. Uh, uh, and I think that's what happened in these long-term partnerships during COVID. They were able to feel the empathy, able to overlook their own, you know, not express their own stress, and and uh, 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 and and. 
and 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 focus on the positive. So the brain is built to be happy, you know. I mean, it is built to be happy. Got to find the right person, <laughs> but um, uh, it is built to be happy. And in fact, uh, you know, good relationships are really uh, are are really good for you. Um, the data now shows that. Um, um, if you're in a positive relationship, it it uh, lowers, um, it boosts the immune system, uh, it reduces cholesterol and cortisol. Really good for memory and and mood and uh, mental ability, agility. Uh, all the hugs you get in a good relationship drives up oxytocin and you feel attachment. Laughter drives up the dopamine system and gives you focus and motivation and energy. Um, when you play with somebody, it it, it helps a brain growth. And sex is very good. I could just go into a whole list of, 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 of what, why sex is good for you, but uh, if, with the right person. So bottom line is we're built to form partnerships. We're built to form good ones. And in fact, during this COVID, I'd like to know all of the good ones that survived as opposed to the bad ones. That's a, a great point, great perspective. <clears throat> okay, so we have a lot of questions for our audience, from our audience. We have, uh, we're about halfway through our hour here. Um, oh, hey, uh, this guy gets the best, um, the best prize for the, the weirdest name, which, you know, if that's coming from me, you know, weird is a compliment. Fossilized Dodo. <laughs> he says, Archie, that could be Gee, um, I'm all for freedom of speech, but I do think that porn has many negative and adverse effects, especially in dating in the digital age. Should it be legislated more? So that's kind of an interesting it's, question. The, question the, about porn. Porn. Oh, he's saying porn. P O R N. Porn. Uh huh. Should it be legislated? Do you think any even with any legislation, people would stop doing it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, there's porn on Mayan pots. I mean, there's porn in, um, you know, 15th century uh, Japanese paintings. Uh, there's, 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 porn is something the human animal seems to do. Um, I'm not in the should business. Let me say that I'm not in the should business. So what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I'm an anthropologist. I simply watch society. Um, and there's a couple of things that I personally hope we should do. But uh, bottom line is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't take a couldn't answer that from a personal perspective, but just from a uh, social perspective during this um, uh, COVID, uh, the amount of people buying sex toys went way up. Um, I'm not surprised. Uh, 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 masturbation went up. Uh, I'm not surprised. Um, sex can uh, give tremendous relief uh, to the body and to the mind. And if you're stuck with people uh, in your same uh, room for six months, <laughs> I think you are going to be inclined to use that as an outlet. Um, so uh, uh, whether we should legislate porn, I think would just go underground, frankly. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I generally don't think that government intervention is um, very effective and it almost always has other unintended consequences. However, uh, that doesn't mean that porn is, is good. Um, I would particularly say from an objectivist point of view, Ayn Rand had many racy sex scenes. Uh, she, she 
believed that sex uh, was a, a beautiful spiritual thing. And so she was sort of against porn. It didn't mean she thought that the government should regulate it. She thought there should be a complete uh, separation of economy and state for the same reasons as there should be a separation of, of church and state. Um, but, but I think she thought it was degrading actually to something that she thought was actually, could be very uplifting and beautiful was, was the hu human romantic physical union, so. Well, I would like to add, I mean, you know, porn can be useful. I mean, sometimes people can use, you know, pornography to enhance a partnership. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, for or against it, but uh, once again, everybody looks at the bad. And there's all kinds of people who use fantasies that they get off of one of these sites uh, that enhances sex with their partner. And I just might add that uh, uh, sex is good for you um, if you're with the right person. And, uh, uh, and if you use porn together and it brings you together, I mean, you know, any stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can help sustain feelings of romantic love. And with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin that can help with feelings of deep attachment. And um, the pain threshold goes up uh, 10% uh, 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 during sex. Uh, it boosts the immune system. Uh, it promotes sleep. Uh, it brings oxygen to the brain. And what it really does, which was really not very well known, um, is that it, um, it enhances mood. Um, in seminal fluid is an enormous number of neurochemicals that actually uh, can be just as, it's a wonderful study by Gordon Gallup and, and others, um, uh, anthropologists, and they ended up finding that, um, uh, you know, the contents of seminal fluid can um, be just as good a boost as, as an SSRI, as an antidepressant. So um, if there's a lot of people who use porn to, uh, enhance a partnership uh, in whatever ways they do it. Uh, and I would just like to add the second half of this puzzle, can't all be bad. So um, Mark uh, has a question. He says, my wife passed away and I have had it, I have found it hard to be in love again. How can I feel love in the future? So that's his question. So maybe a perspective on uh, you know, grief and how people work through it to, to find a place where they can find love again. Is yeah. Guilt or what are the things that are inhibitors there? Well, I hate, I mean, I don't know more about him. I don't know how long ago his wife died. I don't know what the relationship was like. I don't know what kind of love he's looking for. I don't know anything that would make my, my sentences more reasonable, but I'll just say this, you know, we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. Uh, the second is feelings of intense romantic love. And the third is feelings of deep attachment. These are basic brain systems. And when he's ready, when he is ready, those systems will click into action again. These are brain systems like the, like the um, fear system or the anger system. They're not gonna go away. And he may be the kind of person who really doesn't want to fall in love again, doesn't want an attachment again, but he sounds like he might be, if, since he asked the question, he probably is interested in it. And um, what he's I would- here. He's here after all, listening he, to- uh, He's here and he's asked the question. Um, so, um, well, I would just say that the predominant way that people actually do meet uh, these days is on the internet. 
um, in, I ask every year in the Singles in America study and Singles Around America, every age group, um, every background, uh, every region, uh, et cetera. And um, the predominant way is meeting on the internet. And we do know that when we compare people who date on the internet, uh, meet on the internet as opposed to off the internet, not just match, not just because I work with match, but anywhere on the internet as opposed to anywhere off the internet, people who uh, date on the internet are actually uh, more likely to have a full-time employment, uh, more likely to have higher education, and more likely to be interested in a committed partnership. And in fact, one study out of the University of Chicago shows that uh, um, if you met somebody on the internet, you are more likely to make a stable partnership. So I would go to the internet. I would learn how to use it. And I'd be happy to tell you the big mistakes people make. And if you're over 50, I would probably go to our time. It's, it's for people over 50. Um, I do think that people over 50 are looking for some different things than, than the very young. You're not likely to reproduce. <laughs> you might not want to move to Arizona if you live in uh, Maine. Uh, you got a lot of property already and children, et cetera. So bottom line is, I guess I would, um, I would use the internet. Um, I mean, I don't know if this person is over 50, but I'm over 50. I mean, I, most people over 50 are not going to meet somebody in a singles bar. They're going to sit there for 10 years having mm -hmm. a too many drinks uh, and not meet anybody. So I'd get on the internet. Uh, I would use it properly. And here are the two things that you need to do. There's nothing wrong with the internet. It's that people, it's such new technology that you don't know how to use it. So one thing that I would do is after you have met nine people, and I mean met, I mean either met in person or met uh, on a video chat so that you can see them, hear them see the background, see the way they move, how they smile, how they listen, how they talk, etc. After you've met nine people, stop. Get off that site, whatever site it is, and get to know at least one of these people more. And the reason I say it is because of this concept of cognitive overload. It's pretty well established now that the human brain can't cope with more than about nine options. Between five and nine options is the sweet spot. And after that, you can't remember who you spoke to, you, you, you know, the, your list of things that you, you can't remember it anymore. And you choose nobody. All of the dating sites know that. They try to get you to focus on just a few people because if you swipe left, right, left, right, and this, you're gonna end up with nobody. So A, number one, um, get in, get out of the internet and, and pick a site that you like or more than one site, whatever. It is work, I gotta say it's work. Uh, but look, you're waiting for life's greatest prize, which is the next sweetheart. So uh, uh, it's worth doing. And I'm um, sorry, I forgot to turn that off. Um, um, it'll stop now. Um, so, uh, but anyway, and the second thing I would do is think of reasons to say yes. So get on the internet, stop after you've met nine people and think of reasons to say yes. And be honest, be honest, be honest, be honest, because you know it's amazing. I've watched reality. Reality exists. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, you know. Well, fortunately, right now we're interested in honesty uh, because of COVID. Honesty, transparency, uh, meaningful conversations, and don't be scared of having them. Uh, men are just as likely to have meaningful conversations as women are. So you just got to get out. It is work. I mean, uh, you can't overlook the fact, but at least you don't have to go out every night, get yourself all dressed up and spend money in a bar. I mean, at least you can do it from home. Get your friends to help you. It's a good idea. How many people don't really know who they are? 
you know, they'll say, oh, I've had this job forever. It's not impressive. Well, it might be impressive to somebody else. Oh, I've always had this interest in, I don't know, um, studying butterflies. Might be interesting to somebody else. You know, oh, I might, uh, you know, I love to play bridge. Bottom line is it, people are out there. They are out there, but you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there too. So Mark Smith actually asks the perfect question. Um, he said, I thought this had something to do with libertarianism or politics. And I say it is the perfect question because I met uh, Helen at a spectacular lecture that she had done uh, on a whole new subject matter, which she was imply uh, applying her system of looking at various uh, sort of hormonal and neurochemical um, makeups and, uh, and seeing whether or not libertarians might fall into a particular uh, category. So if, if, it'd be wonderful if you'd share a little bit about how that idea came to you. And, and yeah, it, Absolutely. And, and I'm, I hope we're not boring him or her, uh, whoever this is. Um, but anyway, back to Mark. Mark Smith, yeah. Uh, Mark Smith. Well, Mark, um, so I study the brain and I made a speech uh, to libertarians uh, down in Florida. Basically what I've been able to realize is uh, using brain scanning and studies of 14 million people is that we've evolved 14 million. I created a questionnaire that's now been taken by 14 more than 14 million people in 40 countries. It's the only questionnaire in the world that's based on brain circuitry. Every one other one, the Myers-Briggs, the big five, all of them uh, started from understanding the linguistic studies to make a questionnaire. They can't then go back to the linguistic studies to prove that that questionnaire actually measures what it measures. Mine's the only one in the world that does. I started by looking at the brain and I've come to realize there's a lot of systems in the brain. Most of them keep the uh, heart beating or the eyes blinking. They're not, not linked with personality traits. There are four that are. The dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems. And um, if you are, no, we all express all of them, but to different degrees. So if you're very high, and this is what um, libertarians are. I think, I don't know how many people were in the room. They all took the questionnaire. I analyzed the data. <laughs> and you are largely um, built uh, uh, from two basic brain systems, the dopamine and the testosterone systems. That was, you are outstandingly uh, characteristic of those two personality styles. People who are very high on the uh, dopamine scale tend to be risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, and mentally flexible. They make the most money. They lose the most money because they're the most daring. They're the most likely to get a higher education. Uh, um, uh, and they, they're, they're real risk-takers. They, libertarians are also very high testosterone. And the traits linked with the testosterone system in the brain, analytical, you guys are analytical, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at what scientists call rule-based systems, everything from mechanics to engineering to computers to math to music. Music is actually very structural. Not to me, I swing to the beat, but uh, high testosterone people really see the structure of music. So basically what I did is I 
uh, I analyze all kinds of people. Uh, now, for example, uh, Mitt Romney and, and Mike Pence. Mike Pence is very high serotonin guy, cautious. It's interesting when, you know, I, I read some things about him and uh, he says he's a principled conservative. He didn't say he was a forward-looking conser uh, conservative, uh, an imaginative uh, conservative. Uh, he's a traditional conservative. He's going to think in certain ways. He's going to be cautious. He's going to be process-oriented. The high serotonin type, which is not libertarians, they tend to be very, they, they're, they're conventional, they're traditional, they're cautious, not scared, but cautious. They follow the rules. I don't think libertarians follow the rules. Uh, I don't, uh, unless it makes sense to me. Um, uh, uh, high serotonin, I call them builders uh, or guardians. Uh, anyway, uh, con con uh, traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority. Um, they like plans and rules and schedules. They tend to be uh, religious. There's a gene in the serotonin system linked with religiosity. Uh, and you can see that in Mike Pence. Uh, uh, frankly, I could tell you if he were to become president, I could tell you how he'd do it, uh, only from knowing the brain. I mean, we can, uh, they're not mentally flexible, um, but uh, they are, uh, you, they're predictable. You're gonna know what you got. Well, um, so, I remember, I think you took the, you said that you scored high on, you were more higher on estrogen and also dopamine, right? Is that right? I'm very high on dopamine and estrogen. Uh, I mean, uh, in, terms of, I've, in terms of dopamine, I've been to 110 countries. Um, I've been to the highlands of New Guinea uh, where they had just burned a girl from the stake uh, and, and, and they were, you know, um, accosting tourists and, and, and tying them to trees and shooting arrows at them. I mean, uh, I've been to North Korea uh, I've been to Mongolia. I've been to da 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 da, da uh, all kinds of places that other people would regard as as uh, risky. Risky. Um, I also talk about the evolution of adultery, and we just talked about divorce. Uh, and I walk on a lot of podiums and make a lot of speeches, uh, which is, is very risk taking. Even this is risk taking. Um, and so I'm a high dopamine kind of person. I'm also very high estrogen. I cry at a parade, which is pretty. Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I hope I'm verbally skilled. Uh, I make my living with words, uh, writing books and making speeches. Um, I'm horribly empathetic. Uh, I'm a contextual thinker. That's one thing that I think libertarians really are. They're not only logical uh, and analytical and skeptical, but I do think they have that trait of real contextual thinking. A lot of high testosterone people, they get rid of all of the ancillary, all of the contingent, and just focus on the goal. From my experience with libertarians, they really have a long-term, broad, contextual view of, of the world and the issues of the world. So there's an estrogen trait that if I look back at my data on uh, libertarians, I would find that they probably are very high on that particular trait of the estrogen system. Now, we all have some traits of each of these systems. Now, for example, I'm, I'm not high on testosterone. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I have no math skill whatsoever. I don't see the structure in music. Uh, I could get lost in the bathtub, uh, <laughs> I, but I'm logical. 
I regard myself as logical and analytical, and those are traits of the testosterone system. I have almost no serotonin in me. I mean, almost none. Um, I don't follow the rules unless it uh, makes sense to me. And my guess is that an awful lot of libertarians are that way too. Um, that's the high, high dopamine type. Um, that, 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 you know, I don't respect authority uh, uh, as the high serotonin type does, uh, unless it makes sense to me. Uh, I'm not cautious. Uh, uh, I'm cautious a little on the road, but uh, I'm not cautious in my thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that there's patterns to nature, there's patterns to culture, and there's patterns to personality. And it was really a, a great um, challenge for me to, to, to write that speech and that I made to libertarians, truly trying to understand the thinking style that you all have. Now I've married one, so I got it around me all day and night, which is fine. And I've certainly turned into one um, in many ways. I, I have some democratic leanings, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm largely a libertarian. And I'm, I'm fascinated by your skepticism, uh, your contextual thinking, your analytical and logical thinking, and your risk-taking. Boy, I tell you, I go to some of your things like the Atlas Society and I'm standing there with a drink next to somebody and I ask them a sort of important question and they turn around and tell me. They tell me their answer. They're not scared. Uh, anyway, so it's a very interesting group of people. And I just did this study of you know 5,000 Americans and uh, uh, singles, 5,000 singles. I did it in August that I mentioned. And 39% of singles are Republican, uh, 50, over 50% are Democrats, and only 3% are Libertarians. And I looked at that study and I thought to myself, I, it is my guess that an awful lot of people from both sides would be Libertarian if they really understood what it's about. That's my hypothesis. Well, it could be. I remember um, taking, now, I don't know if this uh, impacts your hypothesis or maybe it me means that I'm actually less libertarian because I took your test at that conference and I was the opposite of you. I was high testosterone and high serotonin. Well, you're a manager. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, you, know, you gotta I mean, you, have you rules and- society. And um, you've got the patience for that. I couldn't do it. That's <laughs> good. You're in the right place, kid. You really are. I mean, I, uh, you probably can deal with all those details. I couldn't deal with all those details. I mean, I deal with details in the, if they blow up into a giant eyed fury. You you can't do that on a daily level. You got to be moving papers around an awful lot. You probably have some other people. You're managing. You're probably managing a lot of people. Managerial skills are in the serotonin system. It's fewer, fewer than one would imagine, given all that the Atlas Society is able to accomplish. And the other thing that we're, my staff of six is all women. Uh, I, you know, I've got a senior scholar who's a male, but but we're we're all women, which uh, of course, and Ayn Rand was a woman, so it feels um, well. But you know, you know, a woman could be serotonin, or a man could be serotonin. <clears throat> In fact, when That's I did a study of a hundred thousand <clears throat> uh, people. At an academic study, statistical study, um, I found that um, there were just as many women who are the high-risking, high-dopamine type as men, and there were just as many men who were the high-serotonin, traditional, conventional as women. I studied it in um, six cultures, uh, Japan, Australia, Germany, uh, 
Spain, uh, 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 England, uh, US, actually seven, and uh, Sweden. And um, um, you see the difference in the testosterone and the estrogen system in all six societies. There's many more men who score high on that testosterone scale. And in um, um, uh, and, and many more women who score high on the estrogen scale, which you would expect. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the serotonin type, which you are, there's just as many men in that as there are women. I got to ask you a question though. Um, so, so I run this company. I don't run it, thank God, like you. But uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be good at it. Um, but um, it's called NeuroColor, and we go yeah. into companies, and we we're working with some pretty big name companies too, um, and we train them in these four personality styles, and mm -hmm. and you know how they deal with risk, how they deal with schedules, how they deal with think tanks, how they want to be talked to, how they want others, how they need to talk to other people to reach them, um, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, in our company, we we've got a very small company like you. And we didn't have any serotonin people like you. We had we had all these risk takers. Myself, my co-founder, um, and we we had high testosterone people, very techy and neat techy people, and we had um, some estrogen people. Me, we didn't have any serotonin. What happened? The accounting didn't get done. The managing didn't get done. The hiring didn't get done. And of course, we began to realize, oh, right. <laughs> you know, we're hiring people like ourselves and we see this huge gap. Now tell me, your people around you, did you hire high, high, high serotonin and testosterone like you? Or do you well, have estrogen and some dopamine in there? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. First of all, I think most people who know me would say they would think that I would be more high dopamine because I'm constantly taking, uh, I mean, our work at the Atlas Society, it's graphic novels, it's, you know, TikTok, it's crazy gala schemes. It, I mean, it's just animated videos. I mean, it's just totally some wacky new idea, create risks all the time. So, um, so they probably would not think that I would be a policewoman here, uh, you know, <laughs> laying down the law, but, um, but for sure, I, we definitely have some more um, people with higher estrogen. Uh, and I think that's good because uh, they're, the, you know, if I have some blind spots that they have more sort of uh, ability to say, you know, I think this person seems like they might be a little unhappy or whatever. So, but, you know, generally I, I, I get, I think we do have a lot of people, they're all extremely productive and um, I couldn't, you know, I, I want people to come up with creative ideas, but I absolutely require people to work, produce and do it on a deadline. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's serotonin. Hey, listen, I got to take a look at your uh, your questionnaire or take it again because uh, you probably got some dopamine in you. I mean, we all have we're all a combination of all, and that's the problem with all of these other personality questionnaires. They 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 dump you in one bucket or another. The brain doesn't work in buckets. You clearly have some uh, uh, dopamine in you. I mean, uh, but you got to be a manager. I mean, you got to manage the people. You like obviously like the schedules, and uh, you know. Uh, 
What's the important thing is you've got to get the people in the right spot. It's interesting. I was making a speech at Davos several years ago. And, and um, anyway, I, I made a couple of speeches. So I wandered into a, a, another, uh, you know, the, another room and they were talking about building a corporate board. And, uh, you know, uh, they are not taking this kind of thing into consideration. I mean, you might have the token woman and you might have the token Asian and the token black and the, to uh, and the token Latino, but they may think exactly like you. Wow. You might be just hiring another serotonin person exactly like you. I mean, so I'm all for diversity of ethnic background, but how about introducing the concept of, uh, of, of diversity of mind? Wow. We do tend to, we do tend to gravitate to people like ourselves because we understand them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we think we got somebody with pink, blue, green, and whatever. And, but in fact, we've just hired somebody who thinks the way that we do. And in fact, the, I, the great moment came for me. Um, my book on this called Why Him, Why Her came out mm -hmm. in, um, and I was in- Spectacular book, highly recommend everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm writing the business one now. Um, wow. but anyway, uh, about how to use this stuff more in business as opposed to romance. But anyway, I happened to be in Seattle and I was, uh, I, I was being interviewed by this woman. I could tell this woman couldn't stand me. I mean, really couldn't stand me. And of course I became more flamboyant because that's, and so she, I feel I was positive she didn't like me. The following morning I got up and sure enough, I read the newspaper and I was absolutely correct. She couldn't stand me, couldn't stand my book or anything about it. So I got into a cab and I was going to the Seattle airport and I thought to myself, Helen, why didn't you knew she was high serotonin? You knew she wanted the details. Why, did, why didn't you give her the data the way she could hear it? Instead of talking about the huge ideas of these four styles of thinking, start with the details, the Kronbach alpha, the eigen analysis, the ventral tegmental area, pour the details on her. And at that moment, I suddenly realized, I don't believe in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. I believe in the platinum rule, do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. Understand who they are, give them the same data, but give it to them in a way that they can hear it and you can win. As a matter of fact, there was a piece on, on me in the Harvard Business Review, Review a couple of years ago now. And I apparently said, and I still believe because they use that as a quote, if you understand the brain, you can reach anyone. And here's where our friend who asked, what's this have to do with libertarianism? If you're talking with a libertarian, there's certain ways to reach them. If you're talking to uh, Mike Pence or, uh, or, or even Trump, probably. I don't know about him, but uh, 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 you know his personality is so um, irregular. But uh, um, uh, but uh, when you can figure out who somebody is, and in this book I'm going to show how you can read people, how you can read them biologically, um, to understand who they are, and then to use certain kinds of words, certain type of body skin, uh, uh, certain questions to ask them. Uh, that will get into their brain and you can win. I completely agree. And it's a good note to close on because um, particularly, you know, from an objectivist point of view and from our open objectivist point of view, one of the reasons that uh, 
open objectivism was born out of um, a advocacy of not just the ideas of Ayn Rand, but communicating to other groups, including libertarians and conservatives. Uh, because if you just say, hey, this is the way you, you got to learn it, and this is how you're going to learn it, you're not going to get very far. If you're, yeah. I've got all the answers, you need all the answers, you're not going to get very far. And even what we're doing every day at the Atlas Society with uh, the kinds of content that we customize specifically for a target audience, which is young people, and we find out not how we think that they should read the book as it's given, <laughs> but how they like to be communicated to and uh and that's how we do it so i think that that's such a good point i can't wait when's the book coming out oh my god i get back i gotta get back to the desk all right years at least oh okay, jennifer well, it's so delightful thank you thank you thank you i love seeing you thank you so much and uh i'll pull together one of our happy hours it was so wonderful having you join us and we've managed to keep socializing as we <sighs> went through the quarantine and you inspired me also to be a rule breaker. She, she, she had gotten one of the first um, kind of uh, uh, black market hair done. <laughs> and I was just still with my whatever. Of course, see, that means I'm serotonin. I was like going with my crappy, you know, CVS hair color thing. And I was like, <laughs> well, when you need a dopamine person, I'm your girl. All right, and then es estrogen too. All right, thank you, my dear. So good to see you. Thanks everyone for joining us. Make sure to come back next week for the next episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Bye. <laughs> thank you.